Good morning, family. This morning we're going to be reading from Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're desperate for you. We recognize your holiness. We don't want to come flippantly to you. We want to come and we desire your presence to be with us. So would you speak to us today? Would you speak through your word by the power of your spirit? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you change our hearts this morning that we would follow closer after you? We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Simon Sinek is an author, a motivational speaker, and an organizational consultant. Is anybody in, in 2009, 10 years ago, he gave a TED Talk. Has anybody heard the TED Talk by Simon Sinek called Start With the Why? Anybody heard that? Here's a picture of it, Rashawn. You can throw it up. This guy right here. You've seen this guy talk before? He draws these big circles. This talk, 18-minute talk, has been viewed 50 million times. A ton. And what he says in his talk that he gives is he drives these big circles. He calls this the golden circle. And if you can't see, there's three words that he puts in different layers of the circle. In the middle, he starts with the word why. He's got a book of the same title, Start With The Why. He's got why in the middle, and then he has how in the next one. And then the outer ring, he's got the word what. And his talk is basically about how most organizations and leaders and companies, they start from the outside of the circle, and they move towards the middle. They start with the what. What do you do? Okay, well, I make cars. Well, how do you do it? We do it this way. And they move that direction. But he says most people and organizations don't actually ever get to the why they're doing what they're doing. Because it's real easy to focus on what you're supposed to be doing. And that's where people most of the time live. But what he argues in the talk, and I would agree with him, is he says people that have separated themselves, companies, leaders, organizations, they start with the why. That can lead movements. And we have to start with the why and actually go the other direction out. So you start with the why and then you go to the how and then you go to the what, like the arrow he has drawn here shows. And the reason I want to use this as a framework this morning is because where we find ourselves in the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, um, it's broken down um, in 40 chapters is, is the whole book. And most scholars would say that the first half of Exodus is chapters 1 through 18. 
1 through 18, which we've covered the last several months. The next section of Exodus is chapters 20 through 40. And what Exodus 19 does is it acts as a hinge between those two chapters, those two sections. And really, I believe it actually is the crux of a lot of the book. It helps propel us to what we're supposed to do in the back half of the book. I've been tasked with preaching through Exodus 19 and 20 today, chapters 19 and 20. If you're not familiar, chapter 20 is where we get the Ten Commandments, where Moses is given the Ten Commandments. And then chapter 19, which we'll summarize in a, minute, in a minute, is when God comes down this mountain and gives the Mosaic law, the covenant to the people. And it's just like, I, I don't know what I'm going to say. It's like two chapters, it's full, it's packed with stuff. And like 10 minutes before, I'm like crossing this out and changing this. Because how do you preach in 35 to 40 minutes those two chapters? It's really, really challenging and difficult. And even chapter 20, which I think some of us are familiar with, the Ten Commandments, let me remind you what they are just real quick if if you haven't heard them in a while. Um, Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make any idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, honor your father, father, that was almost very bad, honor your father and mother, which where are my kids? This is the one that I want to let them, yeah. That's commandment number five, you guys. Um, Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. Those are the Ten Commandments. And a lot of the times what I think people do when they read the book of Exodus is they're familiar with the first part, chapter 1 through 18. God saves his people. They're crying out to him. They're in slavery and bondage in Egypt 400 years under the thumb of this king named Pharaoh who is just a bad, bad dude. And God rescues them out of that. And even for us as a church, we feel like God rescues us out of our sin. But then nobody pays attention to 19. And they go straight to 20, and they start doing things. And for us, like Simon Sinek, we start to walk around that outside of the circle. What should we do? And so, yes, Jesus has saved me. Okay, what do I do now? Well, I should probably be a good person. I should probably do this list. It kind of feels like a checklist. And then you just live there. Exodus 19 gives us the middle of the golden circle. It tells us why. Why God saves his people. And for us, it will indicate why God has saved us. Exodus 19 is a massive, massive understanding of what this book is about. And so that's where we're going to spend our time. I'm really not going to touch Exodus 20. We'll see the Ten Commandments again in Exodus 34. I want us to focus on Exodus 19 and specifically verses 4, 5, and 6 because that is going to be the answer of why God has saved us. If I asked you the question, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, and I said, why did God save you? Do you feel like you would have the answer in your mind? It's an interesting question, and I think it's a good one. And again, a lot of us in the Christian life even, we don't really think a ton, a ton about the why. We start thinking about the what. What am I supposed to do to live the Christian life? And we start from the outside of the circle, and we go in. We need to start from the inside of the circle and come out. So, 
Let's look at Exodus chapter 19. If you have your Bible open, let me just get us caught up to speed in the story where we are. Exodus chapter 14, God rescues his people from slavery. They walk through the Red Sea in a miraculous fashion. Exodus chapter 15, they praise and sing to God right after that happens. And that should be our heart posture. As God saves us, we should sing out to him and who he is and how glorious he is. Exodus 16 and 17, God provides. He's providing for his people in the wilderness. He provides water for them. He provides food in the form of manna. And then he provides protection from them. They get in this war, this fight with the Amalekites, and God protects them from the people. Then in chapter 18, he provides for them and protects them and gives them a leadership structure under Moses' father-in-law. And so he's providing, providing, providing. And then we get to Exodus 19. It's three months have passed, and they're headed toward, they don't know. They don't know where they're headed, to the promised land. They don't know where that is. They get to the base of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and they camp out there. And then there's this interaction where Moses goes up to the Lord. They have this dialogue. This is where we're going to sit and unpack. He comes down, tells all the people. They're like, that's great. Let's do it. We're going to follow everything God says. So God says, okay, I'm going to come down, and I'm going to make my presence known. It's very similar to what we see in Exodus chapter 3. Do you remember that? Moses in the burning bush, the first time that God encounters and, and reaches out to Moses through a bush that's on fire. And what does God tell Moses before he approaches his presence? He tells him to do something. You remember? Take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. And that's the individual interaction we see. Now we see it communally with all of God's people. Because what happens is Moses comes back down the mountain and the Lord says, here's what I want you to do. You need to consecrate the people. They need to um, clean and have these rituals because you can't just enter into my presence. You need to be consecrated. It's like taking off your shoes. You're on holy ground, but it's a million people. So the Lord says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to meet with these people. And he comes down and smoke, and fire, and it's violent, and the mountain shakes and trembles, and a trumpet blows, and they move towards him. But the Lord also says, don't let them come too close to the mountain, because if they come too close to the mountain, to my presence, who is holy, they're going to die. And the people get fearful, and that's basically what happens in Exodus 19, and then Moses goes back up the mountain with Aaron and receives the Ten Commandments. So that's the scene that we're painting. And I want us again to look at four, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6 to get the why behind God is saving his people. So let's look there. Look down at your Bibles. Exodus chapter 19. Let's start actually in verse 3. It says this. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We're answering the question, if we're starting in the middle of the circle and we're going out, why does God save this particular people? He saves them in three directions in these three verses that we're going to see. The first way, he points back to the grace-filled rescue of his people. This is what he's doing in verse 4. We're going to unpack it in a minute. Second, he points forward to the future vision for all nations. 
And then third, he points to the present responsibilities of the people. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Here's what God's doing. Again, this is the first time we see a massive encounter where God is encountering his communal people. And this is the first words out of his mouth. Remember? Do you remember what I've done for you? I know you're probably confused. You don't know which direction you're going. I know you're probably tired of eating manna again. I know you don't love your circumstances. But do you remember your other circumstances? You were in slavery You were in bondage to a terrible, terrible king and pharaoh. And I've rescued you out of that bondage. He's saying you had no shot. You had no shot at deliverance without me. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. God is reminding him very, very intentionally to say, whatever comes next in the story, this is really foundational language, whatever comes next is founded and rooted on the historical grace of God. And we have to be reminded of that too, starting with the why, that God's grace is the thing that has saved us, just like it saved his people. And here's why this is important, because when you talk to people that have somewhat of a knowledge of the Bible, and you ask them, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, specifically with salvation? Most people will answer, well, the Old Testament, they had to obey the law to be saved. There were all these rules and rituals, and and that's how they earned their favor with God. In the New Testament, that's not the case because of Jesus. We have grace now. The problem with that answer is it's incorrect. And we see it even in verse 4. What does God start with? He starts with grace. People in the Old Testament were not saved by the law. They were saved by grace through faith. It's the same in the New Testament. Paul illustrates this in Romans chapter 4 when he talks about Abraham being righteous through his faith, not through the law. And in other parts of the Bible, he's correcting the law. He's not against the law, but he's saying, listen, if anybody thinks that they can get to God by doing the right things and saying the right things, they're incorrect because the law has never, will never save anybody. And the same is true for us. And a lot of times we walk around in circles in kind of this, what we're supposed to do. We walk around the outside of the circle, not in the inside, on the outside. What should I do? I judge and base my value to God by what I'm doing. Did I read my Bible today? Did I go to church today? Did I serve in children's ministry? That one actually he values if if you do that. That's like, he's an indicator of like, well, then you are, you're right before me. No, like we do this all the time. We, we think about what we do, and then we put a value on whether we're accepted by God or not. And we're working from the outside in instead of the inside working out. Chris Wright says it this way. He says, grace comes first. Faith next, and obedience to the law, a necessary third. As a believing response and action of what God has already done, we have 18 chapters of salvation before we get a single chapter of the law. The law is a response to grace, not a means of earning it. And this happens to me all the time. I still walk around on the outside of the circle on the what and place my value on what I do. I feel like what I do saves me. 
And that's just not true. And we see it here as God is telling his people before he's going to give them the law, he's telling them, listen, it has to start with love and grace. My love and my grace towards you. I'm the one that brought you out of slavery and brought you to myself. If we reverse this order, it's really, really dangerous. If we think we have to do the right things in order to receive grace, that's, that's the backward order. But again, we try to do this all the time. I, I've been thinking about why it's so hard for me just to believe this truth and receive grace. And honestly, I think it has a lot to do with um, receiving grace is really hard because you have to be vulnerable. Because what it's really saying is it's saying there's nothing you've done. And I kind of want to feel like I've done something. I kind of want to feel like I have some type of control over this thing. And I don't. I want to say, well, there's a reason you, you picked me because I'm a good person or I did the right thing. Or, like, that's just not true what we see in the Bible and what we see in the story. God moves towards people because of his grace and his love, not because of anything I've done or you have done. Look at how the author of Deuteronomy picks this up in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 6, talking about this specific story, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath, he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So God doesn't choose to give his grace to these people. He doesn't choose his grace for the church because of who they are and how amazing they are. Rather, he chooses to give them grace to show how amazing he is. Grace and love are the foundation of why God has rescued his people. That's the beginning of the core of that why. Look back at your Bible, Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, how I brought you to myself. Verse 5, now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And God is not only reminding them it was his grace that saved them. He's reminding them of his promise, of his nature, of his covenant that he made with Abraham. Again, if, if we don't understand the baseline understanding of Genesis, we're going to have a really hard time understanding Exodus. It'd be like going to the new Star Wars movies and not having any understanding of the old Star Wars movies. You kind of get it, but you kind of be lost. It's not as rich and, and meaningful. And so the same thing is true in the book of Genesis. We have to have an understanding so we can understand Exodus. Because what God is pointing back to in his covenant is in Genesis chapter 12, he brings out a man, Abraham. And he says, you are going to be my people. I am going to give you the nations and I'm going to bless you so that you can bless other people. And then he has a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15 where he meets with him and he gives grace as he passes through the pieces and he uses a smoking pot or fire, which is very similar to what we see in Exodus chapter 19. It's the same story. God is reminding him, this is the same story. 
The way I'm coming down to you is the way I came to your father Abraham. This is the same story about my grace. This is the same story about my goodness. This is the same story of I'm using you to bless everyone. That's important for us to be reminded of as we see that in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. So sometimes we think, why why has God saved me for holding to the middle of the circle? Why has God saved me? Because he loves me because he's given me grace. Nothing that I've done. That's true, but there's another side of that coin. If that's the only answer that you said, hey, why has God saved you? And you're like, well, because he loves me, because of his grace. Yes, definitely true. But there's a, another side of that coin, and it comes in Isaiah 49.6 when God says, you will be the light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God didn't only save you because of his love and grace, but he actually saved you for a reason. He saved you for a purpose. And that's what we're going to see here in verse 6. Exodus 19, 4, 5, and 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, and how I brought you to myself. Now, therefore... If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So in verse 6, when God calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does he mean by that? A kingdom is just uh, an area that you're going to reign over, a particular area. And a nation is just a mass amount of people, which both of them will have. So it's really not about kingdom and nation, but really about what kind of kingdom and what kind of nation. They're meant to be a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Nation. What does priestly mean? This is helpful for us to understand. And again, it's getting to the why of if God saved you, and it's because of his love and grace, but it's also because he is calling you to be on mission. What does it mean to be on mission as a priest and somebody that's holy? The function of a priest in the Old Testament was to stand in the gap between God and the people. We see Moses doing it in Exodus 19. He's going back and forth between God. He's getting an answer. He's coming down. He's telling the people. He's listening to the people, and he's going up to God. He's standing in between. And that's what a priest does. A priest had specific functions of teaching the law to the people. We see that in Leviticus 10, Deuteronomy 33, Jeremiah 18. They were appointed to make known the ways, the words, and the commands of God. So through the priest, God would be known to his people. If you take the priest out, the people really don't know God. Again, take Moses out of this story. The people are going to, they don't know what God wants from them. But God is using a mediator, Moses, as a priest to translate what needs to happen. Another thing that the priests do, they would bring sacrifices to the people for God. When somebody sinned, they would bring an animal sacrifice to the sanctuary. They would kill it. Then the priest would take blood and throw it against the altar. Then the priest would declare that the person, that their sins were atoned for, and they could come back into covenant fellowship with God. So that was the role of the priest. And so now God is saying, you are going to be a kingdom of priests. The whole collection of people, the whole million people, you are going to be a kingdom of priests. What does he mean by that? What he's saying is, you will be for me to all the nations what the priests are for you. 
Through you, I will become known to the whole world. And through you, ultimately, I will draw the world to myself. You are going to be the mediator of what it means to serve me to the rest of the nations. The Apostle Peter extends the scope of mission as he calls all believers. Anybody that has bowed their knee to Jesus, we're all called a priest. Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as we're called to be a kingdom of priests, this means we are called not only because God's love and his grace, but we're actually called to be on mission, to actually do something with our lives. And that do something is to let people know who God is, to, be, to stand in the gap. And so you all have people in your lives, whether it's your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, they don't know Jesus. I hope you know some people in your life that don't know Jesus. If you don't, you probably need to interact with some more folks. But you probably have people, and you're probably thinking of them right now in your life that they don't know Jesus. You get to act on God's behalf for them in the sense of you're displaying your life, and they're looking at you, and you're explaining who Jesus is. That's our role as Christians, as the church. That's part of our mission. That's part of the why God has saved us, to be light to the nations. And you might say, like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. Like, I, I'll just take the grace and love. That's good. I don't really feel like I want to be a priest. Um, and if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you just, that's not an option. It's not an option for you. <laughs> It doesn't, there's certain ways to do it. If we keep going down the circle, you don't have to do it in certain ways, but there are, you are called to be a priest. Because basically what you're saying, and all those people you're thinking in your head that don't know Jesus, if you're going, well, I don't really, I don't want to fill that role. I don't, I don't want to do that. And they don't have the truth. It's like you have the antidote to something that will save their life. And you're going, well, I don't really want to share the antidote. Because it's like uncomfortable or, I don't know, I just... I'll just take the love and grace. It's two sides of the coin. God has saved you for both reasons, because of his love and grace, and because he wants you to be missional to the people he has sovereignly placed in your life. How do we do that? We do that through the other part. To be a holy priesthood, or I'm sorry, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's it mean to be holy? Again, I think we get confused a lot of times what holiness means. We think it's following the Ten Commandments. We think it's all these laws and rules and rituals. But holy actually means, the original word just means to be set apart. God has separated his people. So why? So that they would live differently than the culture. Look at Leviticus 18. Talking about God rescuing his people out of Egypt and putting them in the land of Canaan. This is what it says in Leviticus 18, 3 and 4. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, which I am bringing you to. You shall not walk in their statues. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Okay, we need to catch this. This is really important for us. Again, he rescues them out of Egypt. And he's saying, listen, you're not going to do like you saw them do. But he's also placing them in Canaan. 
And he's saying, I don't want you to do what they're going to do either, but I'm placing you there. I want you to live among them. Right? And the reason he's saying this is not the separation, the holiness is not about geography. It's about idolatry. And so for us, it doesn't mean we're going to move away from all the bad things in the world and huddle up and not tell anybody about anything and just we're just going to do Jesus because every, the world is scary and terrible and bad. And it is, but God is actually placing you in that world so that you can be holy. And so the separation isn't about geography. The separation is about idolatry, not following the idols of the culture. And the idols of the culture in Exodus were power and production. You remember when God meets Moses Sorry, not God meets Moses, but Pharaoh meets Moses, and Moses says, let my people go, and Pharaoh responds what? In Exodus 5, let the people go. Let the people go from their work. There's an idolatrous culture of power and production in Egypt, and God in Leviticus is saying, I don't want you to act like that. Do not act like that. Be holy. Be separate from that type of activity. But then Canaan, they followed a God named Baal, and Baal was about fertility. Baal was about success. Baal was about prosperity. And God said, I'm going to place you there, but you need to be holy and separate, not in geography, but in idolatry. I don't want you to follow those cultural norms. I want you to live differently. So Exodus had power and production. Canaan has fertility, success, and prosperity. Are there any other cultures that you're aware of that sound like that, that value those types of things? God is not calling us to leave and move. He's calling us to be separate in our idolatry, not our geography. To say, listen, I'm going to enter into this, but I'm not going to follow the way the world does that. Be holy and be different. Paul picks up this idea in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You might be familiar with this verse. He says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing it, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is saying the same thing the author in Leviticus is saying. Don't be so shaped and molded by the word that you just go along with everything he says. Be different, be holy. And as you're holy, what's going to happen is people are going to start recognizing the change in you. And they're going to say, what is that about? You get in a fight with your spouse and the world would say, okay, Put, I'm gonna, you just said that? I'm going to put that one in my back pocket because wait until we get then I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to destroy you with that comment. That's what the world would say to do, to push and push back. But God's people love each other. They give mercy to one another. They move towards each other in love. They sacrifice for each other. And when the world sees that type of activity, and they will see that type of activity, if they're around, they're going to scratch their heads and go, what are you doing? And you get to say, I'm just doing what Jesus did for me. And you get to engage in a conversation, being a priest and being holy. And here's the thing about holiness. We're almost done. Here's the thing about holiness. A lot of times what will happen, and we even see it in what God is doing in the nation of Israel, specifically because he starts with grace before he goes to law. But obedience to the covenant, it talks about in verse 5, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, obedience to the covenant was not a condition of salvation. We need to make that clear. Obedience to the covenant was not. It's like they're not saved by keeping the covenant because God is going to keep the covenant. They're saved by grace. It's not a condition of salvation. It's a condition of mission. 
It's a condition of purpose. That's why you obey the covenant, so that you can be used by God with other people. Because what's going to happen is if we stop pursuing holiness, this separation of our idols in our culture, and we start walking with God, if we stop pursuing that, what happens to your witness and your effectiveness? Man, you don't want to tell anybody about Jesus. If you know you're not walking with Jesus and you're just dismissing what he tells you to do and you're being disobedient, you don't want to have anything to do with telling anybody else about Jesus. And so holiness is not only about your good. This is kind of shocking. We need to hear this. We kind of think of holiness. I need to live holy because it's going to be for my good. And then I'm going to be right with God, which is true. But holiness is not about you. It's actually about other people that see you. That go, this, is, this person's different. It's for the sake of the gospel and for mission. I like the way Chris Wright puts it when he says this. We have in these verses the grace of obedience responding to the grace of salvation and living in the grace of mission. Obedience here, as throughout the Bible, is ultimately for the sake of God's purpose of bringing salvation and blessing to the world of nations. So Christian follower of Jesus, if you obey the instructions, the commands, the laws of God, you need to realize it's for the purpose of mission. This is why God saves his people. This is the middle of the golden circle. This is what we need to remember to move from the outside in, not the, or the inside out, not the outside in. This is why God has saved you. He desires for you to be a, a priest in your contact, in your work, at your family, in your neighborhood, with your friends, to display his glory, to be the mouthpiece to a watching world. And the way you're able to do that is to live a holy life in obedience to him. Exodus 19 is it's a reminder for us that this God of the Bible that we serve, he's the creator of everything. And he's fearful He's pretty unsettling. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, and he desires to be present with his people. But just like the nation of Israel, and they had those limitations they had to set up, they had a barrier to God's presence, so we have a barrier to God's presence as well. And the Bible calls it sin. We can't enter into a holy relationship unless our sin is dealt with, unless it's cleansed, unless it's consecrated. And there's only one way that can happen. It's through what Jesus did on the cross because that is the ultimate cleansing. That is the ultimate consecration. So now that we can enter into right relationship with God, and it's not like in the Old Testament where we had to bring the sacrifices to the priest. We have access 24-7. If you bent your knee, if you trust Jesus, you have access to that cleansing. You've already been cleansed. You don't have to work it out anymore. And Hebrews 4 says this, let us be confident, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love the end of that verse. It says that we may find mercy and find grace in our time of need. And to live holy lives for the sake of other people, we're going to have a lot of need because we're going to blow it. We're going to mess up a lot If we think we can do it on our own power, we're wrong. We need God's spirit to empower us to live holy lives, to tell people about him. 
We need God's spirit to break our pride when we do something right or when we do something wrong and we don't want to admit it. And we have access to that grace through the cross. And that's why we take communion every week at this church. We take the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice to be reminded of that cleansing of what Jesus has done for you, what he has done for me so that I can go out and live a different life. May we be people reminded of why God has saved us. And may we be motivated to be people living on mission, living holy lives for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your love and grace for us. God, thanks for reminding us that that is why you saved us. Not only because you love us, not only because of your grace, but because you called us to be a light to the nations. God, you called us to be priests, to be holy in the way we live, and we fail time and time again. God, thanks that you're the ultimate priest in Jesus. Thanks that you lived the perfect holy life, and that's why we can now be made right through what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. Help us remind, uh, be reminded of that this morning in a fresh way. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.